This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What's so striking with Maastricht is he has a very thorough and long treatment of saving faith right at the very beginning. He is in an age where folks are starting to say, you know, you don't necessarily need saving faith in order to study theology. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined here as ever by James Dolezal. James, how are you? I'm well, Jonathan. Looking forward to our discussion today. I am too. This is a volume two of a a, a series of, of books that are translations that are entitled Theoretical Practical Theology by Petrus van Maastricht. And the first one, if you'll remember, we interviewed Joel Beakey right. uh, about, and then this one, it, which is subtitled Faith in the Triune God, we're going to have a chance to speak with Todd Rester. Dr. Rester is Associate Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So, Todd, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Now, we did talk to Dr. Beakey when Volume 1 was released, but I wanted to get your perspective just to start on what you see as distinctive about this particular systematician and this particular systematic theology. One of the points I saw whenever I was reading through Turretin, in the preface of Turretin's Olympic theology, he makes a note, besides the fact that his students were going to publish his lecture notes without his involvement, um, and that's why he's rushing it to press. Besides that point, the other thing that stood out to me was the fact that he was mentioning he really wished he could include the fuller-orbed version of theology that would do the exegesis and the dogmatics and the practice. And so whenever you run across someone like Maastricht, who has actually labored to do that, um, it shows that it's not that other professors of theology weren't interested in those things. It's just what makes it to print sometimes is not always everything that you might want to put in. So uh, what I see in Maastricht is this is a lifetime sort of endeavor on his behalf. This represents his engagement with his students through lectures over periods of time. I've traced many of these same sections that you see in the theoretical practical theology. I've actually found uh, smaller versions of them in um, disputational form that are housed in libraries like the British Library in London and uh, the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin and elsewhere. So there, there's pieces of, of this. Um, when you're reading this theology, what you're reading is, this is in large part, the lessons in theology that he would do for tr the training of pastors. And I think that's why it's so interesting to see this flow from exegesis to positive development of doctrine into a negative elenctic, if you will, and then into practice. Uh, he's he's at the at the heart of what he's doing. It's not just a defense of the faith; it's a defense of the faith for the good of the church through um, the training of these pastors. So I, I, I'm encouraged by it, and I think that's the value that the Dutch Reformed Translation Society and its board have seen in it. And uh, I just we, we all hope that it's it'll serve as a blessing to the broader church community. One of the things that jumped out to me just looking through it, and I and I've only gotten it recently, so I haven't read it cover to cover, but just in, in scanning through it is the beginning of it. This is a volume with the subtitle, Faith in the Triune God. So you're thinking doctrine of God, and yet it begins with a chapter on saving faith. 
Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why is it that Maastricht begins with saving faith and how does that contribute to his overall presentation of the doctrine of God? In the first volume, one of the things that we saw, um, and it was, an, it was a decision that we discussed um, at the board, but one of the things that was involved was where do you put his treatment on preaching? In his first edition back in the 1682 and following of, of those volumes, he had put that issue of preaching um, right up front before you get to the prolegomena. In the, this edition, in the later edition, 1698-99, what you have is that's the last thing the seminarians read. But either way, you've got this emphasis on preaching. Uh, the next thing you find in the prolegomena is that emphasis on scripture and the way to, the right way to uh, line out theology. And then it seems very natural to have this discussion about saving faith. Hornbake was one of Maastricht's professors, and Hornbake reserves that discussion of faith for much later in his treatment. But that doesn't mean it wasn't of interest to Hornbake. So it's not that these sorts of concerns are uh, foreign to the Reformed in general. It's just what's so striking with Maastricht is he has a very thorough and long treatment of saving faith right at the very beginning. So he is in an age where folks are starting to say, you know, you don't necessarily need saving faith in order to study theology. You may not have that habitus of saving faith um, in order to study theology. And Maastricht is saying, no, it's absolutely vital for the people that study theology that they should actually believe. So in a sense, what he's doing is saying, this isn't what we would call a purely academic concern or purely academic study. It has to be you have to come at it from a certain viewpoint with certain commitments. Correct. In the sense that he would not be satisfied with any form of theology that did not lead you to a greater knowledge and love of God. Uh, is my impression, and, and, and I would like to convey that clearly. He will say that over and over again. I mean, even in, even in the way that he's doing his practice, it's, you know, we've got to make sure that we're understanding this correctly so that we can put this into right practice um, not only for ourselves, but also for others. You really feel the echoes of this opening longish treatise on saving faith through the rest of the volume and all of the various practical parts under each heading, right? As a, there's a, it does actually feel like it fits with the way he's writing his theology. It is. I mean, one of the things that um, the Reformed are frequently, I think, critiqued for is that they don't do well on the doctrine of assurance. And I think that claim is something Maastricht is sensitive to, uh, because if you read through his treatment of saving faith, it terminates on the issue of helping people come to this greater persuasion that the promises of God are for them. Hmm. Uh, so that that does form a very practical edge to why we do theology. It's not simply to understand the scriptures rightly and to come to the right doctrines. It's also to put it into personal practice. Um, so that those could come to saving faith. It's also, I think, a tool in the hands of pastors. If you have a treatment on saving faith that's clear and helpful, um, it's a tool in the hands of pastors and others who would help admit people into full membership in a local church hmm. uh, by helping people work through what does true faith look like, even if it's weak? What does true faith look like when it's strong? What is false faith? And, and so he's really grappling, I think, with those sorts of questions. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so helpful. Right. The very, the very sorts of questions that uh, an elder interviewing a potential church member is going to be concerned about now. Exactly. 
Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's kind of a perennial um, sorts of questions. So let me give you this quote from Maastricht on it, because one of the things that he's very clear to say about the definition of saving faith is he wants to be clear that it's saving faith is, is an act of the whole soul. It's the whole person. Um, it's not just the intellect. Here's a quote from, uh, this is, so forgive me for the long academic citation, but it's part one, uh, book two, chapter one, section six. We call this faith an act, an act of the rational soul that consists in receiving God as the end and Christ as the mediator. Its mode is in that preeminence wherein we receive God as the highest end and Christ as the one and only mediator, and its ends and fruits are first union with Christ and then communion with him. So what you see, what he's trying to do, um, he's really trying to bring people into that close saving relationship and his teaching about God. Moving into the body of the, of the work on theology proper, maybe you could say uh, something to our listeners about the value of this. And I think it might be tempting, but wrong for a modern reader to think that a translation and publication of this sort is simply an historical curiosity for people interested in such things. And we've talked before, and I've talked to Jonathan about this. When I was doing my MDiv, Turretin had only just been uh, released in translation, had not really been digested or made part of any curriculum, um, and that these things have been changing over the last 20 years uh, in terms of resources available, and now with a translation of, of a major work of importance like this. Presuming that you didn't spend all this time and effort simply to produce an historical curiosity, what is the value for the current pastor, interested layperson, or um, ministerial candidate to to familiarize themselves with a work like this? What is what is current value for us? Well, put it in context for him, he's dealing with Socinians, he's dealing with um, Cartesians, and others like that. And one of the points that comes out in the, among the Socinians is the primacy of human reason over the scriptures. Hmm. One of the points that comes out for the Cartesians is the necessity of doubt to strip away everything so you can start with the person um, before you can arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And so Descartes would actually recommend a period of doubt, perhaps a sustained period of doubt, before you come to a full knowledge of God. And... Um, Maastricht has no, no patience with that. He's deeply concerned that someone, if they do go through that period of protracted doubt, that they may not come to faith at all. Hmm. Um, so for him, one of the things that is shot through this work is he'll deal with questions that seem like they're touching on a very philosophical point in Descartes. But the practical upshot of it is it's dealing with how certain is your knowledge and on what basis do you have that knowledge of God? And then furthermore, what is the nature of doubt? And is it something that a Christian could or should rightly be engaged in? And how do you overcome it? So those sorts of things that are coming through, and even in these sorts of treatments where you're dealing with the existence and knowledge of God, that's the next part that he goes into. So you have this treatment on saving faith, but the next question that he's going to deal with is what do you do with these Cartesian and Socinian sentiments about the nature of reason and the primacy of doubt? Hmm. So I think that is still relevant in some ways <laughs> to our modern environment, our, sure. even our postmodern environment. Uh, is there truth? What is the nature of truth? Can we have knowledge of God? And um, what is the nature of doubt? And how do you come to faith? These are perennial questions. And unfortunately, they're, they're all too relevant today. 
Right. My undergraduate students, I think, wrestle greatly, maybe even in unstated ways, with the question of certainty. How can you know for sure? And while they may not be Cartesians or have yet even heard of Descartes um, or remembered who he is, um, this idea of unsurety as being a safe and responsible place and almost a virtue, never to be too certain of anything, uh, is certainly something that we're fighting against now. So, for example, in that same chapter on the existence of knowledge of God, um, after he's dealt with all the dogmatic questions about what is this knowledge of God and how do we come to it, in the practical part, he is taking up the issue of what do you do with practical atheism? Hmm. You know, what what kinds of atheism are there? <laughs> right. And, and then he actually goes through and talks about remedies for it. Motives against atheism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that that is an interesting way to point someone, you know, if, if you've just dealt with, here's the knowledge and existence of God, and then that's all you had, surely there's a place in Christian theology that we have to then turn pastorally and say, and here's why this is significant for your the people in the pew. You know, you may not, as a pastor, certainly you're not going to get up and, and read in an academic mode uh, textbook theology. But to help someone grapple with a text and a theme or an issue in, in your preparation of your sermon, surely you would want to exhort and encourage people um, who are struggling with faith and who are struggling with knowledge of God and how do you come to it and to point them to Christ, to point them through the scriptures and to point them through safe means, as it were, to find a safe harbor from these sorts of issues. And that's the kind of thing where someone like Maastricht is very helpful. Um, it's not that you can necessarily cut and paste his answers, but sure. you can see the answers that he's grappling with and, and striving towards. Just for um, the benefit of many who may be new to Maastricht or to these works, could you briefly summarize the context in which he wrote these? You talked about them earlier as being mature works where we can see some of the exegetical groundwork being laid and, and the application being made, which, which makes them immensely valuable. But give us a thumbnail sketch of who this man was and, and why his works were worth preserving and then even worth translating apart from the things we can learn even even today. So I guess what stands out to me about Maastricht's life, um, he was born in 1630 and uh, died in 1706, was that he was raised in an environment in um, in Germany uh, as a, in a Dutch Reformed church. And so he grew up in an environment that was a mixed international character. After he received his training in Duisburg, uh, he went on to study at Utrecht under um, Kaisbertus Futsius, as well as uh, Hornbeek. And from them developed a, a, a deep sense of pastoral ministry and practical theology, as well as a very sharp um, understanding of what is required of a minister academically. And he was trained in the scholastic methods of his day. But he started his ministry in 1652 in Cologne and Xanten in Germany, which again was a, a mixed environment. Uh, Lutheran and Reformed uh, churches were, lit, were right beside each other. He served well there and was eventually called to go to a, a pastorate in Gluckstadt, which today is in Northern Germany, but at the time was actually in Denmark. And the church he served in had actually been given to the congregation by the Danish king during King Christian IV's life. He died before, well before Maastricht. But all that to say is that Maastricht did on occasion have uh, the Queen of Denmark in his congregation. 
So he was in an extremely mixed environment as far as theologically, internationally, ethnically, uh, as well as he was circulating among uh, some of the poorest, but also some of the, the most elite people of his day. When he was called to go to uh, work in the university at Frankfurt, one of the things that was pointed out, all this information is provided in volume one in um, Adrian Neely's biography of him. But one of the things that was what struck me was the fact that the elector wanted professors at his university in Frankfurt who were moderate and not quarrelsome, that were prominent and they were learned. Uh, so what I see there is that Maastricht rose to that occasion and was able to articulate the distinctives of the Reformed faith in a very broad environment. Uh, there were many people in Frankfurt that were from all over the place. Uh, you had people that were um, English. You had Huguenots. You had po people from Poland, Lithuania, Hungary, Bohemia, and Northwest Germany. So in that environment that he was in in Frankfurt, he really was challenged and pressed to, to hold his faith faithfully, and yet at the same time minister it to a wide array of people. He then went on to Duisburg in Germany um, as well, which was uh, in the midst of a it, was a, it was a reformed speck in the middle of a Lutheran environment. And then after that, he is moved on to Utrecht in 1677, where he would serve for the rest of his life. And so one of the things I guess that I see there is that Maastricht cultivated an attitude of service and yet scholarship. Uh, at the end of his life, he did die single. Um, he, was, he was praised for his meticulous understanding of how he held himself as a single man, but also he was very generous. He left the whole of his estate, from what I understand, to the seminary students at Utrecht. So you see a man's life who was characterized by service and by, uh, by a deep sense of calling. And so I guess for those reasons alone, whenever you begin to understand something about his context and who he was, then you read through these sorts of uh, treatises that emphasize the theology so well, but also the practice uh, so well, you begin to get a sense of how the ministry for him shaped up. That's very helpful context. Uh, last question, were there things as you went through this in translation, were, were there elements of either the way he argued or particular things that he argued for that were uh, surprising or unusual for the context in which he labored? One of the things that uh, I think that it just impressed me over and over again was the scope of what he's reading. Hmm. Uh, he is, is very well aware of what's going on in Lutheran circles as well as in Socinian and Remonstrant circles, not just in his own Netherlands, but also in other contexts in Germany and in England as well. Um, one of the things as a translator that's always fun is when you run across a stretch of Latin and the work that he's citing as a Latin title in his book is actually not, it's actually maybe a German text. In order to find that quote, you have to ratchet through what this Latin text would look like in that period German. Um, so the fact that he's reading through all sorts of manners of things, it's in very intimidating as a translator. And that's one of the reasons why I'm grateful for our team uh, on this project. The other point that I would say that's interesting as well is, of course, as a Hebrew professor, he's deeply engaged with a lot of the rabbinic literature. So he's reading a, quite a bit of medieval and even prior to that of the rabbinic teachings. 
and then the diversity of text that he's reading. Uh, so, for example, in a very casual way at times, he'll say things like, well, as I'm comparing Beza on this section in Matthew, as well as the Ethiopic, we, I'm going to have to ratchet through this this way. That as a translator is is daunting to work through and to to find how and where and when he's what he's citing. The other thing that I think is interesting, too, is that he doesn't always mention it. But he is deeply engaged with reading um, some of these exegetes like Grotius in his context. He's also reading Jesuits very heavily, as well as Spanish Dominicans and others. So he really does have a very broad grip and um, breadth on what's going on in theology of his day. Well, we appreciate your labors in translating Latin footnotes back into the 17th century German and in all that you did uh, to bring this to us. And, and thanks also for your time today, Todd. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And I really do hope that this, is, this work serves as a blessing to both to your readers and to others as well. Well, I have no doubt that it will. And, uh, and, and thanks so much for, for coming on. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. As a gift to one of our listeners, we are offering a copy of the book that we just discussed. It is Hot Off the Presses, Theoretical Practical Theology, Volume 2, Faith in the Triune God. And if you would like the opportunity to win this, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a, a button for you to press there to enter your email. And we can see about sending one of you a copy of this book. We always appreciate hearing from you, our listeners. We appreciate it when you recommend the podcast to others. If you're able to donate, you can do that on AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org. And as always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>